The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. I'm Angus Colwell, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue of the magazine. This week, we'll hear from Katie Balls on why the Tories love a veteran, John Connolly on the UK's new migrant ghettos, and Gus Carter asks why he isn't invited to many dinner parties. First up is Katie Balls. When Conservative Prime Ministers face a problem of logistics, from ambulance driver shortages to border force failures, there is a solution they like to fall back on send in the military. When Boris Johnson was London mayor, he welcomed David Cameron's decision to invite the army to help with the Olympics, after the security firm G4S failed to provide enough staff. Now Johnson is in number 10, he regularly calls on the troops to deal with any state deficiencies. During the pandemic, army personnel worked closely with the NHS, first in helping to build a Nightingale hospital in 10 days, and then during the vaccine rollout. Just this week, the government welcomed a far-reaching review of health and social care leadership co-produced by Sir Gordon Messenger, who led the Royal Marines' invasion of Iraq. Might the army also fix the dysfunction in Johnson's Downing Street? At the start of the year, when the Partygate story broke, Tobias Elwood, a former soldier and the chair of the Defence Select Committee, said that an officer should be drafted in to bring a bit of discipline. None was forthcoming. Instead, Johnson replied with a military illusion, telling colleagues it would take a panzer division to get him out of number 10. Since then, things have got worse for the Prime Minister. Elwood is one of the 148 MPs who this week voted to force him out of office. The rebels failed this time, but the fact that 41% of the parliamentary party voted against Johnson means there's talk of there being a second attempt before the year is out, and a leadership contest to follow. Such a contest would be unpredictable. After Rishi Sunak's fall from grace, there is no obvious front-runner. But many Tory MPs and party members are beginning to think that candidates with military credentials could have the edge. When one senior Conservative recently polled some Tory activists as to who they thought could make an effective leader, he was struck that Defence Secretary Ben Wallace and Foreign Affairs Select Committee Chair Tom Tugendhat were the two most popular choices. The group noted approvingly that both men had served in the army. MPs with defence credentials are overrepresented in the Conservative Parliamentary Party. More than 40 are military veterans or reservists. Those who haven't served are hyper-aware of the appeal. One senior minister's guide for wannabe MPs looking for a safe seat is to make sure it has good schools, isn't too close to London and has an army base. The last of these means plenty of chances to show support on an issue that pleases the party membership. That defence credentials are a greater asset than ever for ambitious Tories is not just because of the war in Ukraine. The government has won support from backbenchers and the party membership for its handling of the situation. It's also about setting potential new leaders apart from Johnson. In Conservative leadership contests, there is a tendency to overcorrect. Margaret Thatcher was domineering, John Major was meek, David Cameron was slick, Theresa May was solid. May was then criticised for a lack of personality or social skills. Johnson offered plenty of both. Since Johnson won his majority of 80 in 2019, he has become known for other traits, a disregard for the rules and a loose relationship with the truth. 
It's therefore no coincidence that after months of drift, several of the names doing the rounds have a strong claim to military discipline. A service record has become shorthand for values, says a former minister. Others regard the MPs on military manoeuvres differently. They tend to have very high opinions of themselves, which means they're not backward about coming forward, says one who did not serve in the army. Still, there are several possible Conservative cadet candidates, led by the Defence Secretary. Wallace served with the Scots Guards in Germany, Cyprus, Belize and Northern Ireland. He has won support from the membership for sending lethal aid to Ukraine before Russia's invasion and has sat at the top of the popularity table as voted by readers of the Conservative Home website for four months. Ben will be the next Prime Minister, asserts the senior Tory who backed Johnson in 2019. Next to Tugendhat, who was in the army from 2003 to 2013, including in Iraq and Afghanistan. His supporters point to his speech in an emergency debate on the evacuation from Kabul. Like many veterans, he said he had struggled through anger, grief and rage as the scenes unfolded. The supporters say it showed he's a values politician. There are others who fall into the conservative cadet category. Penny Mordaunt, a Royal Navy reservist who briefly served as defence secretary under May, regularly references her credentials. When she spoke at the Spectator's Parliamentarian of the Year Awards in 2014, she revealed that she delivered a speech on poultry welfare for the sole purpose of saying cock several times, after her Navy colleagues gave her the forfeit for a misdemeanor during training. Mordant is some bookmaker's number four choice for the next leader at present. Tugendhat's second and Jeremy Hunt, an admiral's son, first. She recently wrote a newspaper article about President Eisenhower and D-Day, in which she offered her thoughts on leadership. It should be focused less on the leader and more on the ship, she wrote, adding that confidence and competence are not the same. Mordant doesn't impress everybody. One minister says suggestions that she is a serious contender are as mystifying as the Bermuda Triangle. If military candidates continue to gain special favour in the eyes of the party membership, still others could march to the front. Johnson's chief of staff, Steve Barclay, did a stint as a second lieutenant in the army. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, the book whose third choice, lacks military experience, but she rarely misses a military photo op. Last year, she famously posed in a tank in Latvia in a deliberate echo of Thatcher. As she told friends after, if you were asked to, why on earth would you not want to go in a tank? There may not be a leadership contest yet, but there is no shortage of candidates ready for the charge. That was Katie Balls. Next, it's John Connolly. So far, the UK has managed to avoid the kind of clashes between asylum seekers and local residents that blight other European countries. Our workforce is now 19% immigrant, and even higher percentages than America's. But this relative harmony might soon be threatened. Since 2018, the processing backlog for asylum seekers has grown to a staggering size thanks to the Home Office's failures, COVID lockdowns and, to a lesser degree, a recent rise in the number of channel crossings. The existing accommodation stock is overflowing, with 37,000 migrants being put up in hotels at a cost of £4 million a day. The Home Office needs an urgent solution, but the one it has found is far from ideal. Small towns and rural communities are being told they must host processing centres and or house asylum seekers, leaving desperate, bewildered migrants, who are banned from working, stranded in the countryside. It was recently announced that my own small town of Stafford in the West Midlands has been chosen as the location for a dedicated accommodation centre for up to around 500 asylum seekers. The plan is to convert an old student digs called Stafford Court, with 170 migrants staying for initial processing and another 310 living there longer term. The decision has been presented to locals as a fait accompli by Serco, the company contracted to handle it all. Unsurprisingly, Stafford residents are livid. The council's website is currently groaning under the weight of furious emails from people objecting to the planning application. Some of the anger even appears to have been neutered for public consumption. 
Several responses published online have been redacted by Stafford Council with a thick black marker. One reads, Please stop this circo, redacted, from going through and, redacted, the lives of local people along the way. Another response says, I feel the change would make a huge difference to the area where my home is, with the next five lines completely scrubbed out. The uncensored responses are mainly concerned about the strain in local services, especially the nearby A&E, which is tiny, and GP surgeries. Many residents also ask about the risk of housing young, single men in an area with two schools nearby and nothing else to do, and the impact on crime and property prices. Some expressed hope that the accommodation would be used to house Ukrainian refugees, but the majority are likely to come from Iran, Albania, Iraq, Eritrea, Afghanistan and Syria. Others are concerned that there will be little education, language or mental health provision in place to support the arrivals. It's hard not to feel sorry for the asylum seekers who do end up here. As much as I like living in Stafford, it's not exactly Monte Carlo. The town has decent rail connections, also has a handful of shops and restaurants and a nice park, but not much else in the way of entertainment. And Stafford Court isn't even close to the town centre. It's a 40-minute trek away from anything interesting other than a leisure centre. The asylum seekers will be given £5 a day and provided with the occasional shuttle bus to the Stafford metropolis. The site itself consists of a three-storey compound on the edge of the countryside with the feel of a low-security prison. It's bordered on the west by Stafford Fire Station. Across the fields to the east is the local crematorium. What about life inside Stafford Court? The building will be partitioned in separate blocks, with around five people sharing a kitchen, and in many cases a bathroom. It's not clear if these residents will be separated by nationality. Even if they are, there can often be conflict or language barriers between asylum seekers from different regions of the same country. Most, as Circo acknowledges, will be single adults. Refugee charities point out that things work best when asylum seekers are properly embedded in the local community. By contrast, the Stafford Court scheme seems to want to create a ghetto on the edge of town. To head off any tensions, Circo advises asylum seekers, or as the company prefers to call them, service users, to avoid congregating in groups so as not to unsettle locals. It also requires them to check in every 24 hours. But other than that, the new arrivals will be mainly left to their own devices while they wait in limbo for their application to be processed. And that could take some time. At the moment, more than 73,000 asylum seekers in Britain have been waiting more than six months for a decision, and some longer than five years. It's not hard to envision there being trouble, when up to 500 young men, many suffering from PTSD, are left twiddling their thumbs in the middle of nowhere. And given that they're banned from working, what are they supposed to do? As one local commented on Facebook, frankly, being stuck in Stafford with no job and nowhere to go is enough to drive anyone round the bend. So why was Stafford chosen? The answer is most likely down to bureaucratic convenience. Ever since the Immigration Asylum Act was passed in 1999, asylum seekers have been dispersed from London and the southeast across the country, with every local authority supposed to house up to one migrant for every 200 people in the area. In theory, the burden is evenly shared. In reality, companies contracted by the Home Office have always opted for areas with low property prices. That's why cities like Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham and Glasgow have traditionally hosted a disproportionate number of asylum seekers, while some local authorities have looked after zero. For all the system's faults, Placing asylum seekers in cities at least meant they had access to a larger community and more in the way of a normal life. Now that the application backlog is growing, however, and property prices have risen in many of the big cities, companies like Circo are looking elsewhere for cheaper places that can quickly be converted. It's this kind of attitude which has led to the quiet village of Linton-on-Ouse in North Yorkshire, finding out that it will soon host a processing centre for 1,500 migrants, effectively doubling the village's population overnight. More of these stories are bound to follow. It's clearly not sustainable for thousands of asylum seekers to continue bunking in hotels and hostels for months on end. More accommodation centres will have to be open somewhere. But until the Home Office develops a policy that isn't just based on saving pennies, it will be the small communities and the asylum seekers themselves who bear the brunt of the system's failings. It's to our credit as a society that we've coexisted so peacefully so far. 
A tenured home office trying to warehouse refugees in communities that are in no way suited for them is the surest way to change that. That was John Connolly. Next, it's Gus Carter. I don't get invited to that many dinner parties. I hope it's not a problem with me, although I can't rule it out. Instead, I have a feeling that the era of nibbles, laying the table and stressing about the starters is over. When I ask my friends how many invites they get, there's a reasonably consistent answer. Roughly one every few months. I'm not talking here about spagbol with pals. A dinner party is a sit-down affair with multiple courses and, ideally, a few people you don't know for company. In their 20s, my parents were apparently having a dinner party almost every week. My mum has three smartly bound journals, all with the title Guest and Menu Book. Inside each is an assortment of table plans and wine notes, entries on roast lamb and claret, as well as occasional thoughts about the conversation. This is the last time I cook for people who claim to be struggling on £100,000 a year. One reason for the death of the dinner party is Britain's mad housing market. It's not uncommon to visit a friend's flat and discover nothing more than a bedroom or two and a galley kitchen. Even in homes that have space for a full kitchen table, you'd be lucky to fit more than six people in. No one in the 1980s, I'm reliably informed by my mother, would have been seen dead in London at the weekend. Once you'd finished on a Friday afternoon, you'd hop in the car and drive either to your friends at the Ag College or, if you worked in the city, to your own Oxfordshire cottage. Now, even someone on £100,000 a year would struggle to find a decent dinner party bolt hole. The other problem, of course, is housemates. Many Londoners spend their 20s floating between house shares, upping sticks every year in search of cheaper rent. Sharing a flat is mostly transactional, often with somebody you found on a spare room website. One friend used to get a text every time she so much as left a teaspoon on the side only to discover that her highly strung housemate had been keeping a secret cat in her bedroom for more than a year. You will, inevitably, have to invite these housemates along. It's their house too, after all, which means even fewer spaces for the guests you actually like. Restaurants too are to blame. Why spend the afternoon chopping onions when you can just invite a handful of friends out for dinner, where you'll have more space and everyone splits the bill? The difference is that you can't behave all that badly in a restaurant. It's also harder to corner someone while out for a smoke, which is, of course, one of the essential functions of a dinner party. Traditionally, they have been an opportunity for romance, for hosts to matchmake and for guests to meet friends of friends. Even in the era of dating apps, nothing quite beats a drunken snog in the corner of the garden. But the urge to matchmake seems to have gone the way of the landline telephone. People are expected to find their own dates, with the apps turning what was once a collective endeavour into something totally private. Why risk the embarrassment of attempting to set up friends when they can just as easily sift through online profiles? The result is tidier. There's no risk of an awkward breakup splitting your group, but it's also dull. You know what you're signing up to when you swipe right, but there's a thrill in wondering whether you might hit it off with a dining companion. There does seem to be an Oxbridge divide, My Oxbridge friends get invited to, and host, more dinner parties. Maybe it's because they can afford larger flats, being the smartest brains in the land. But my theory is that they're different. Firstly, because they're used to college dinners, but also because they've spent their university years pretending to be upstanding members of society. If you've got into the habit of dressing up and sitting down for dinner, why wouldn't you continue? While us Redbrick students were discovering the consequences of drinking three bottles of white lightning in one sitting, 
Oxbridge students were learning how to pass the port. But with restaurants getting pricier, perhaps 20-somethings are going to return to the dinner party. It's certainly a development I'd welcome, if anyone wants to invite me round. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.